and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Please do not hit pause or stop. You've already determined that this is not Jonah Goldberg, but you are on the remnant right now. This is the remnant. I'm David French, Jonah's colleague at the Dispatch, semi-frequent remnant guest, and I'm filling in for Jonah uh, because Jonah is in Alaska. Now, I'm supposed to do some obligatory um, shots at Jonah. Uh, I can't do that because he's uh, on a very serious project right now. He's off the grid. He is in the wilds of Alaska interviewing subjects for his book on uh, Bigfoot erotica. And uh, so we, we will not see the fruits of that labor for some time. But in the meantime, you've got, you've got me and you've got David Bonson, also a frequent remnant guest. Uh, now, David, before we dive into real stuff, I, I've, as a fellow David, I want to ask you a really quick name question. Do you have a division in your life and the people who call you Dave and David? Um, yeah, I would if I allowed there to be one, but through careful work, that division is 99 David and one Dave, because I just have chosen to stick with the name my parents gave me. I found wherever I go, I just never exert, exerted my, uh, my will on that. And so f- there are distinct sub friends that I have that call me Dave and distinct set of friends who call me David. And I think they're just dr- dramatically different names that almost even imply a different personality. Yeah, I, I think one just has such a uh, more sophisticated sound to it, doesn't it? That whole <laughs> it David. But also because um, in my case, you know, they were technically naming me after the David of the Bible, and no one refers to him as King Dave. <laughs> it's true. Maybe so. in his fraternity days. Like, yeah. <laughs> which when, he did have actually. Yeah, come to yeah. think of it. <laughs> I mean, King Dave has a kind of a different connotation when you're talking yes. about a frat house. But <laughs> all right, so here's what we're going to do today, listeners. We're going to be, uh, we're gonna we're gonna cover a few topics. Uh, first, uh, David has been writing on a daily daily basis, um, really since the beginning of the COVID crisis. Um, a daily missive about coronavirus and about the economy and about the markets. So you've been following it as closely as anybody in the country. And so I thought it might be time to sort of press pause on, or at least for the first part of the podcast, on some of the political talk or religious talk and just dive into what's going on with the coronavirus from a viral standpoint and also from an economic standpoint. Then we're going to move on and dive into political Christianity. What is the state of political Christianity? And then we might, if we got time, wind up with some thoughts on Never Trump. What is it now? And what are the different strands of it? So David, um, when I read your your daily missives, um, I'm, I'm often, I have to confess, and, I'm, and you're going to have to carry the laboring oar on the, economic po- on the economic side of this. I'm often sometimes lost by a little bit of your market analysis. I'm always quite intrigued by uh, your just flat-out pandemic analysis. So if, I, if I'm going to ask you, um, what is the state of the union when it comes to the pandemic? How would you respond to that? 
Um, it, every day we're learning more information, and the State of the Union, like most things, can be uh, interpreted right now in a, with a lot of positives, and it can be interpreted with a lot of negatives, and, and it, it requires nuance, which in this day and age we're not good at doing. And it's funny, you said we're going to put politics and religion aside and talk about this, and then we'll, we'll come back to politics and religion. But if one didn't know any better, the coverage of COVID does seem to have become highly politicized and, Yo, and, and cultural. I think you, you've pointed that out. Um, it, it's unfortunate. It's a little bit mysterious, but it is what it is. But that's one thing I've totally committed my COVIDandmarkets.com daily missive to is um, complete and total apoliticization of it. Um, I have a lot of opinions about it, where we've been, where we are, where we're headed, but they don't have a um, inkling of, of politics associated with them. We're, we're, as a country, and it doesn't really work this way, right? Um, you know, it, we, the it, impact of COVID right now in Wyoming and the impact of it in Miami-Dade County is very different. And so to say that 39 states are seeing right. positivity rates decline or whatever, if that were true, it wouldn't necessarily matter to the aggregate numbers or it wouldn't necessarily matter to someone who's in Harris County or, or, or some of the more problematic places. But I do believe very strongly that the focus on case growth is um, highly unhelpful. That um, as a matter of precedent, we've learned from other countries, and as a matter of our population, all of a sudden, our incredible success in escalating testing has created a new set of data that we have to interpret and go through and do so with objectivity and do so with humility. Mm -hmm. um, look, there's a lot of mysteries in the data and pe and people that analyze data for a living are trying to determine correlation and then they're trying to determine causation. And there's a lot of inconvenient facts in that because um, the I, I look, I'll, I'll tell you this, David, because you're a southerner. I read certain Northeast economists that are uh, that are a value and they're not uh, virologists, they're not epidemiologists, but like me, they're forced to kind of wear a certain medical hat as they're trying to extract economic right. uh, takeaways from this. And there's a certain kind of anti-Southern bias in some of the stuff they're saying that I really don't like. Like, I don't believe the narrative that the case growth we're seeing now started on Memorial Day weekend when a bunch of Southerners just didn't want to wear masks and started going out to bars and barbecues. And yet us cosmopolitan Northeasterners, we learned our lesson, we're behaving, and now we have our curve under control. The far more logical explanation is that the places that right now are suffering from greater infections didn't suffer from them before. And the places that are having more muted infections had it worse before, primarily the city I'm sitting in right now here in Manhattan. And so I think that's where we're at is that the Arizonas, Floridas, and Texases are suffering from the fact that they had a very, and I mean very minimal infection penetration yeah. during March, April, and May. And then the fact that um, the testing has gone up. The two factors put together have led to some difficulties in those states. Yeah, I think 
I think that there is a word that is not talked about enough in the context of the spread of the virus, and that word is luck. Um, you, you're talking about um, there. There was there was some good fortune that many states experienced, and just amongst the the this who traveled from where, where you know. Not everyone who was infected interacted with the same number of people. I mean, there's just an enormous amount of variability here that in some ways was hidden, I think, by the lockdowns. Because once everyone went into lockdown, that capacity to continue, it, it wasn't blocked, but it was hampered. The ability of the virus to spread was hampered, not blocked. Uh, and so, you know, we hear all this stuff about first wave, second wave, et cetera. I, I don't think that we've really ever left the first penetration of the virus. Oh, I agree completely. And that's very much true in those states that are right now dealing with, with the uh, case growth. So I think that luck, not only do I agree with you on a macro basis, but I agree with you on a micro basis. And I agree with you on both sides of the coin, good luck and bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you're right. 440,000 people did not fly into Indianapolis airport in February <laughs> from China, but they did right. fly into LaGuardia and JFK. Yeah. Um, but then it doesn't end there because there's also the high density of Manhattan and there's the subway system and there's a number of other factors. Um, what I don't have an interest in doing is analyze and see this make this like so many things in both of our lives, David, this leaves me with no friends because <laughs> I actually am really not all that critical of POTUS from a policy standpoint with COVID. I'm incredibly critical of those pressers and his presentation throughout March right. and April that I think uh, lacked empathy and lacked leadership. But, but as far as the thing, I don't believe that there's much, uh, that he could have done. And the whole thing about talking it down early on, I kind of want leaders doing that. I think until you know, I don't like the idea of fear-mongering people either. And so, you know, there's definitely mistakes he made. Actually, you and I talked once on the phone about that silly thing of wanting the cruise ship staying off dock and so forth. You know, all I, 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 my point being, whenever I analyze COVID, the last thing on my mind is Trump. Mm -hmm. But similarly, I don't go out of my way to hammer Cuomo about the nursing home thing, um, although I think it was a really, really catastrophic error. But I think that there also are some good things that he did, and and it just strikes me as really unfortunate that there's a DeSantis Cuomo thing and a Trump non-Trump thing and all that going on here, where really the most interesting political aspect of COVID right now is what I'm intimately connected to because I live half the time in California, half the time in New York. So my two governors are uh, Newsom and Cuomo. Right. It's their rivalry that no <laughs> one is talking about that's really driving so much of what's going on is I think that it's impossible for Newsom to come out of this with some mythological, heroic reputation when California never got it that bad. And so now I think that there's almost this incentive for him to hype up California's trouble so that he can solve the trouble so that he can get some of the love and affection that the good folks at CNN give Cuomo. Well, you know, I think that it just to, just to walk down that rabbit hole for a bit, I think that that the dichotomy between Cuomo and Newsom and the coverage of the two states is illustrative of the fact that the media, for all of sort of the fragmentation of American entertainment and culture, the national media is 
hyper concentrated now in that Acela corridor, hyper concentrated. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it, I, I was talking to a California friends some time ago about the wildfires um, that just tormented Northern California. I remember flying in for a speaking engagement at Berkeley and being stunned at just the, the air quality, the color of the air, the omnipresence of the haze and smoke from these fires. And someone said, yeah, if this was happening 30 miles from Manhattan, it would be all that anyone would be talking about in the country. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you're right. I mean, so, you know, if you're Newsom, you're sitting here going, wait a minute, we had, as, you know, maybe as much or more commerce with China as New York does. We uh, have far fewer cases. We have dense cities. San Francisco, the Bay Area is a pretty dense place. We have far fewer cases. And Cuomo is the hero with this thing. What the heck? And yeah. But, you know, the, there's also another issue here, and that is the determination, the determination to condemn, for example, Governor DeSantis uh, in Florida, the determination to condemn some of these Southern governors when, quite frankly, the states are just very different. They're very different. In Tennessee, for example, even our big cities in Knoxville, we have three you know, decent-sized cities, Knoxville, Nashville, Memphis. They're not that dense. David, they're not that dense. And, uh, you know, there are some sort of built-in geographic advantages that these that some of these southern states have. And a governor who doesn't understand that and appreciate that and react to that in a way that helps the economy keep going uh, uh, while also trying to control the virus is being a bad governor. Well, it's so interesting. I, I remember in Newport Beach, California, which has been my home most of my adult life, um, there was some developers like 20 years ago that wanted to put up a couple like 15-story, 20-story offices, like two or three buildings, right? And the anti-development crowd put signs up all over saying, reject the Miamiification of Newport Beach. And of course, if you've been to Miami, there's just skyscrapers and tall yeah. hotels and everything, like a regular big city. But to them, the idea of one or two buildings meant density. Yeah. And and it's all relative because relative to Newport Beach is very low density, is only 80,000 people in the city. It probably would have seemed like it, but when you're comparing it to Miami and these other big cities. Well, the same is true uh, in Nashville. I had kept an office in Nashville for seven years and Nashville's grown a ton. And, it, and, and as southern cities go, it's a major city and it's an economic growth story for the history books of the last 20 plus yeah. years. But compared to Manhattan and the density and, and, and the public transportation dynamic and so forth. So I just I think back to your original question of what the lay of the land is. Um, it isn't political. It isn't spin. It is absolute objective truth that so far the increase of cases is with a wildly healthier demographic of people. Thank God. I don't know why anyone wouldn't be happy about that. We have younger and healthier people that are getting infected, far less symptomatic, if not asymptomatic. And thank God we're testing four to five times as many people as we were in late March. And well, actually more than that late March, but even, even mid April. Right now, our testing is about five times what it was mid-April. So with that said, it doesn't help answer where things are going. And I think that the numbers, when you start getting to 90% ICU capacity in Austin, Texas, Houston, Texas, uh, Maricopa County in Arizona, that's going to scare people. 
Now, what's interesting over the last two weeks, because uh, these cases have surged now for four or five weeks, right? the hospitalizations haven't gotten better, but they haven't gotten worse. They've really kind of flatlined. I think there is a lot of local talent, ability, know-how to manage the capacity issue. And um, it, it does seem to me with the infection rates dropping rather substantially now in Arizona, which was the first state to start to get the outbreak in this so-called, erroneously called second wave, Arizona's definitely started to see case growth declining. And so I'm optimistic about that. I think from a public policy standpoint, which then leads to the economic impact, um, it's mostly moot. Because on a national level, I don't believe that there would be any appetite for a further lockdown of the economy. But on the margins, bars not open in Miami, you know, mm -hmm. Governor Newsom in California now tightening the rein in a lot of counties on things. Whether it lasts three days or three weeks, the point is a very imperiled economy is going to have to be kind of limping along a little further here. And uh, unfortunately, that's the way it's going to be uh, until there's a little more stability with some of those numbers. So let's I want to talk a little bit about individual behavior uh, as opposed to government policy for a minute, because I think that that is always under discussed in the context of the coronavirus, because if you look at some of the measures of economic activity, they were plummeting before the lockdowns plummeting. So, you know open table reservations, people were choosing even before the lockdowns not to go out. Here's what I've noticed in Tennessee. So Tennessee, if you wanted to have a model state in many ways for a coronavirus response, I would hold up my, my state, my governor. We are top 10 in the country in tests per capita. For We are bottom 10 in the country in deaths per capita. Um, we he gave autonomy to mayors early on in the dense cities who shut down. Um, our total state lockdown was shorter than many other states. Um, so we had the pain of the lockdown, but it was shorter. We ramped up testing. I mean, David, you should see the testing operations here. I mean, it's they're really incredibly efficient. Um, and then we ended and we come out. And essentially what the, the guidance was, and I'm, you know, this is, there was a lot of, there was more specific guidance than this, but I would sum it out as be smart, be adult about this. Um, you know, we're not going to tell you to wear a mask, uh, but you should wear a mask. Um, you should social distance, be smart. What happened? Well, what happened is an awful lot of especially young Tennesseans seem to view the opening of the lockdown as somehow like the equivalent of the virus just uh, signed surrender documents on the deck of the USS Missouri and began to live as if this never happened, like just flooding out. And there are restaurants who did not enforce social distancing guidelines at all. They just completely disregarded everything. I would walk into a grocery store and whereas at the height of the lockdown, everyone would be masked, like three people are wearing a mask. And then all of a sudden, Guess what happens? Spiking coronavirus results, concentrated in younger people. And then what happens? I began to notice about a week after the real increase, all of a sudden the masks came back on. People responded to it. Um, I would walk into Kroger and for those of you who are not in my part of the world, Kroger is a grocery store. <laughs> I'd walk into Kroger and uh, 
90% of the people wearing masks again. I'd go to Chipotle to stand in line to get a burrito and 95% of the people wearing masks again. And then came masking orders. And it was really interesting to me to see sort of the uh, spontaneous response to information. But I will say this, and this gets into the culture war issue. You probably in California and in New York have seen the performative maskers. Those are the people who are like, why aren't you wearing your mask while you're jogging alone outside in the sunlight? In here, around here, we don't have that. We have the performative demaskers. We have the, why are you wearing your mask? We have people who will glare at you for wearing a mask. We have people who will aggressively try to hug you and shake your hand, um, which is, when I see it, I bet it's as infuriating on the one end as it is to watch someone scream at a jogger in a park on the other side. But the difference between someone screaming at the jogger in the park is they're, they're just being annoying. They're not actually potentially hurting someone. Where if I'm performatively running around doing the performative hugging and handshaking and close talking, and I could be really hurting somebody. Well, let me let me take the other side of it just to th- in this comment. I will say though, qualitatively, I bet you're right that there that there's um, more severity on the performative anti-masking. However, quantitatively. I can promise you there's more people on the coast doing performative masking than there are in the regions you're talking about doing performative anti-masking. Even though there is some of that going on, it can't be at the same ratio of the the, the Karens that, that are filling up the sidewalks of Upper West Side. But one thing I learned on the masking side that I'm pretty sensitive to is um, how much it is not necessarily political and not necessarily personality of the states before COVID. I really believe a lot of it is to the COVID experience they already had, is that the issue is Ohio, which is not a southern state, Mm -hmm. but a Midwestern state like Ohio and a southern state like Texas and even Orange County, California, which is much more cosmopolitan and so forth. They didn't have a COVID problem and they were locked down severely well before New York. In the case of Ohio and California, Texas was a bit later. And, and so they didn't understand what was going on. The per capita mortalities were, and still are, by the way, just so minimal in some of these pockets. And then all of a sudden they reopened and I think a lot of the anti-mask thing and so forth was, you shut me down before and there wasn't a problem, so why do I really need the mask thing now? And and so and then and then of course you add to that the cultural and social tensions and divides, and um, I also think too that there's a, a flaw in human nature. That I mean, look, my dad was a brilliant Christian man, but he wore his seatbelt every time he got in a car until they mandated it. And mm-hmm. he stopped wearing seatbelts when they mandated <laughs> oh my it. Goodness. And it's not particularly rational, but I'm saying there is a sense in which I think that um, aggressive masking rhetoric and the people you're describing, it, you know, that are sh- uh, staring people down about it has probably hurt, not helped. But, but it's good to hear what you're saying about Tennessee, because I think that's the case um, with o- other pockets as well, that some people just said, okay, Look, if even if I don't believe wearing a mask makes that big a difference, 
the masking thing is simpler when I just say, regardless of what I may think or not think and preferences and all that, at the end of the day, if it's less effective than people think it is, fine. But the golden rule principle uh, still to me just says there's other people that are going to feel more comfortable if I'm wearing one. And so I'm going to wear one to be more loving of my neighbor. Um, I also think pragmatically, um, you know, my we have a house out in East Hampton and everybody is wearing a mask out there and all their restaurants are open. And if you don't wear it, the restaurants won't be open. And I want to go to restaurants. Yeah. So, so I'm wearing a mask selfishly, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think you raise a really good point. And, and um, anti-masking sentiment here is really much more widespread than I think a lot of people who live elsewhere might realize. It, it's, there, is, um, there are a, lar- a lot of people who I know who are wonderful Christian people who defiantly do not wear a mask, just defiantly do not wear a mask. And, and here's what I, my theory is, is that they, we, those of us who like live in the news cycle, we now know that the argument for the mask is that it protects not yourself, but others. It's protecting, you're protecting other people from yourself. And even if you don't think you are sick, you could possibly be asymptomatic and it's a, it's a kindness to other people. It is a courtesy to other people. It is protecting other people. And I promise you, David, folks don't know that. And that might sound weird. That might sound strange. But I still think it is pretty darn widespread, the belief that wearing a mask is a sign that you're afraid of the virus. And a lot of people don't want to be seen as or, or, be, or they don't want to live in fear and so they are saying, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. And that's exactly the reverse of the purpose here. The purpose yeah. here is not to say, I'm not afraid. It's to say, I'm protecting you. And I, I promise you, large numbers of people do not know that. They just do not know that. And, and that's the only explanation I can find for people who are not all that political. You know, it's not like they're listening to, it's not like they're on MAGA Twitter where, you know, people mock people who are wearing masks. Um, it is, it, I just feel like that's, it's this lack of public knowledge. And that sounds so strange to people who are not, who are on Twitter, people who listen to political podcasts. That sounds crazy. But I think one of the t- markers of our time is the vast difference in lived experience between the people who live their lives with politics as a hobby or sometimes even like almost a quasi-religion or actually a religion versus the rest of America. And, and as, for, as evidence of that, you know, we, we have a Democratic nominee who basically ran an entire primary presidential campaign as if Twitter never was invented and ran away with it, just ran away with it. And so I, I think there's a big gulf in knowledge here. Uh, and, and if we want to, if we want to see people wear masks, and I do want to see people wear masks, a relentless public education campaign, I think, is quite important. Well, and I think I agree. I, I think what would be interesting is to not make a political, uh, excuse me, a public awareness campaign around masking. Make it around the full orbit of healthy behaviors and activities. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and, and and so I just don't see anybody pushing back on the idea of washing your hands and hand sanitizer. 
Um, and, and yet that's being presented as something we need to go do more of. And, and yet people don't push back on that. So right now that genie can't get put back in the bottle about masking. We can, we can sort of do a, a postmortem for years to come as to how masking became this cultural debate. But the reality is that right now we have a real need, as you say, for greater awareness of what healthy behaviors will be. I would prefer as a generally uh, small government, big individual responsibility kind of guy that most of the things that need to get done, get done um, under people freely choosing to do so, choosing to do the right thing. These things about uh, criminalizing not wearing a mask, I'm just telling you, it's going to make it worse, not better. It will it will cause a significant surge in non-mask wearing if they try to federalize and criminalize this dynamic. But if you have a sort of soft public campaign around hand washing, around distancing, around sanitizer, which, by the way, are much bigger needle movers anyways, and then and then can uh, include mask wearing in that dynamic, I think it's a much better sell. All right, one last thing before we move on to political Christianity, and, and this is something, you know, one thing that we have not mentioned here is why why is it that the very large death toll of this virus so i'm looking at the absolute latest numbers as of this instant that we're recording 138,424 people that's so many people why has that not moved the needle on public on public response to this as far as you know taking it seriously wearing a mask etc and I have a theory on this. I mean, one of them is sort of that old that old saying that, um, in an interesting, in in sort of a paradoxical way, the more deaths you have, they move from tragedy to statistic. But also, there's something about these particular deaths and the way they occurred. It's in such a geographic hyper concentration in the Northeast, and in an environment where the ability to sort of publicly acknowledge and publicly mourn these lives was extremely hampered by the lockdown itself. Eliminated. Uh, eliminated. No funerals. Yeah. I mean, you know, the ability of a community to come together and mourn loss and was just completely eliminated. And so it really created this phenomenon I've never seen in this country of kind of silent suffering and isolated suffering to an extent I've never seen, and I think one of the impacts of that silent and isolated suffering is we didn't share in it, and because we didn't share in it, it didn't impact us in the way that these deaths normally would, uh, the way in which 138,000 souls normally would. And so, therefore, that has had a, an impact on, the, on how we take this all, how we understand all this. See, before you said that, I would have proposed a, a different theory, and I kind of like yours better. I don't really know the answer, and I don't know that we're going to be able to know for quite some time. There's a lot of the COVID moment that will get more clarity in the future than we have in the present. Um, I do believe, though, that there is a sense in which the 138,000 is a big number, um, even adjusted for normal annual, you know, medical fatalities that we would have. It's just a massive number. Um, and you would think there would be a bigger uh, reaction to it. But um, it also is a fraction 
of the 2.9 million Imperial College said and the 2.2 million mm-hmm. that the CDC said. And at some point, some of those adjustments down of the IMHE model, the CDC model, and uh, Imperial College, um, uh, as those things were making their way through public consciousness, I think it, it, it just sort of numbed everyone. That at some point, the 138 was not, oh my God, 138 is a huge number. It was, oh my gosh, 138 is a fraction of two or three million. And so that would be my prima facie thought as to why it isn't more shock and awe. But I also think you're right that it, it that the ability to personally and emotionally connect with it was taken away by the lockdowns. So we just have a lot of just awful things that have been in the public square for the last four months. Yeah. Yeah. And some of those models were then over corrected down to like 75,000 and we blew through the roof of those and, you know, who knows where we'll end up. But well, we, we've talked a lot of coronavirus. Let's move on to, um, a different topic related in some ways, in many ways, uh, the state of American political Christianity. Um, I get a lot of, uh, grief, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for being rather critical of sort of the specifically like the white evangelical um, movement in this moment. And I, I would be interested in um, hearing what your thoughts are, if we're going to sort of do a state of the union, a state of the union of the evangelical and evangelical involvement in politics. And, and one of the reasons why I'm more down at this point um, right now than I was even a year ago is I think if you drew a Venn diagram between people who are very much opposed, uh, including people who are online and know better and who are very much opposed to wearing a mask, a piece of cloth over your face that's minimal interference, Venn diagram of the, between those who then also say, you know, a woman should absolutely carry a child full term. Um, it would almost be a unity. <laughs> this is a... This anti-masking moment and this sort of like, and in many quarters, like coronavirus minimization moment is highly concentrated, truth be told, on the right and often in the religious right. And it's something that is, frankly, David, I've been down about hypocrisy um, and, you know, contrasting where I was and where the movement was in 1998 at the height of Monica Lewinsky and and Clinton scandals versus where it is has been for the last five years with Trump. And I didn't think I could get more down, but I'm actually more down. Uh, I, I think that what has happened, especially on the very sort of hardcore activist right, uh, that it's highly, um, highly uh, explicitly evangelical in the last three months has done real damage, not just you know to the prospects of the GOP, that's obvious. I think it's done damage to the pro-life movement. And tell me I'm wrong. Um, No, I don't think you're wrong. And I think I'm either going to cheer you up or make things worse with with what I am going to say. Um, let me, let me, because you, you re brought up the, the Corona thing. Let me say this as it pertains to the political and evangelical movement and its reaction to coronavirus. I may be accused by some of being a coronavirus minimizer, but it would be done falsely and wrongly. 
I do simply believe that the data speaks to something different than what the denialists are talking about and what the sensationalists are talking about. I just simply believe both camps are wrong. And when we look to what the public policy response ought to be, it isn't my conservatism or my evangelicalism or the cultural uh, taboos that go with those things that drive my COVID thoughts. My COVID thoughts are, are, I believe, reasonably nuanced and driven by data and, and where we need to go. And, and I do suspect that um, the biggest thing lacking has not been masking and anti-masking, and it's a big deal and it's not a big deal. The biggest issue, and Jonah wrote about this very early on, a total, complete unwillingness or, un, or, mis, or lack of understanding about trade-offs. And, and so that isn't something that would come necessarily out of my faith, um, but I do take seriously that there has not been a, a perfect solution to this all the way through. I vehemently oppose lockdowns, uh, especially federal ones. I believe in the federalist solutions that you've highlighted in a lot of your writings. And um, unfortunately, I, I accept that um, a lot of people are going to have to get sick, and that, that's where we are. And I want uh, minimal loss of life along the way loss and minimal suffering. But when you get to the, the issue you're talking about now, um, I am more disappointed, distressed, and concerned about the state of evangelical America than I've been in my adult lifetime. And it has less to do with Trump right now than it has in the last four years, because I increasingly believe the folks that Fox puts out as kind of symbols of evangelical America and these MAGA wear, hat wearing pastors and so forth, I just simply don't think they speak for that much of evangelical America. Now, I agree with you that there is a significant correlation of those who are evangelical that are that voted for Trump and probably will vote for him again, um, but I don't think that that's the I don't lump the, that group the kind of eighty one percent of the masses I don't lump them in with Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, and and yet here's where the negative is coming from I think theologically the evangelical church is right now as conflicted and uh, uninformed um, and basically subservient to the wisdom of the world as it's ever yeah. been. Yeah. And so while your question's really driven by has the evangelicalism sold its soul to MAGA, which obviously a big portion of it did. See, I would have been content. I'm not sure if you and I agree on this or not. I would have been content if 81% of evangelicals said, we're voting for Trump because we think net net he'd be better on life and give us better justices, but we're certainly not going to defend Stormy Daniels. Right. If they had done that, I really would have been content with it. I'd still be content with it now to some degree, although I think that whole deal is kind of slipping away. But what the part that guys like you and I have spent four years banging our head against the wall over is the complete inability to stop there. To right. say to say yes, he's he'll be better on these issues than Hillary, period. Instead, it became comma, and who cares if he slept with a porn star? It's not that big of a deal, and so forth and so on. And so I think that that testimony has been lost. You've highlighted better than anyone in the country, David, that it reflected a very poor faith 
Yeah. Um, that that and I hear it still now. Um, it, not only from Christians who I think are exhibiting poor faith as to God's sovereignty, but even yeah. just secular Americans saying, "If we lose one election, it just simply means America's gone for good." And I and I just think. Either I first of all think you're lying. I don't think you're waking up November fourth and you say I'm done. I'm no longer American. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I also think it really reflects a poor understanding of the system that our founding fathers, meaning the Madisons and Hamiltons, actually created to begin with. So, all that to say, I don't know if I'm answering what you're wanting me to answer, but I think that if I if someone said let's really dig deep into what's wrong with evangelical America. I could talk for hours upon hours, and I would never even say the word Trump. I really believe that what has taken place since the late 19th century to where we are now has been a 125-year process of the church selling its soul to the forces of modernism, Darwinism, and secularism, and it is a weak, cheap imitation of the world, and it needs to stop. So yeah, I I would not say if you had a healthy church organism in its political theology and its political witness, uh, we wouldn't be talking about Trump right now because he couldn't rise through the GOP. <laughs> he just it couldn't happen. It couldn't happen. And I I have said this to many um, secular writers and thinkers and reporters who called me to talk about evangelicalism and the rise of Trump. And I say this time and time again, and they often just flat out don't believe me. And this may be completely different from your experience, David, but I have from, from the first moment I have conscious memory, I have been in church, usually more than once a week. And the number of times where I can think of where a pastor gave a deliberate, made a deliberate attempt to inculcate a political theology. How does your theology impact politics and your approach to politics and governance in the world? I can count that on the fingers of one hand. Um, I can give you countless examples of extended courses in your faith and the workplace. I can give you, I heard countless sermons about your faith and your marriage, your faith and dating, your faith and you name all of the spheres of life to the point where, you know, if you're a, uh, if you're a Christian businessman, faithful Christian businessman, and your business is struggling and you might lose your house, like you might lose your house, you might have to pull your kids out of school and move and you're in a crisis and you're on the verge of bankruptcy. And I said, you know what? Uh, you know, you could pull yourself out of this if you just lie. Or if you just, you know, hey, that that fraudulent huckster over there, if you bring him in to uh, be your partner, um, you can pull yourself out of this. And they would say, no, 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 no. The Lord will provide. Even if I go through hard times, even if my family suffers great loss, the Lord will be faithful. The Lord will provide. Um, or somebody's struggling in the marriage, struggling in their marriage, and you say, you know, I mean, another relationship would do you a lot of good. It'd be emotionally good for you. Somebody will finally love you. They would say, no, 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 no. And But somehow it's interesting in politics, this idea that God is sovereign, God takes care of his people, um, is completely, it, it, it's as if this, it's just evaporated, as if it's just gone. And then 
It's replaced by the, the political theological education of the average white American evangelical has come through, I believe, two main sources. One, Christian activist organizations, and two, conservative, secular conservative media. Those two things, and they are not adequate. <laughs> the, no. the, the activist conservative organizations, for all the, you know, many of them are quite good, but they are, they are addicted to Flight 93-ism. They're addicted to it. And as a business model. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I also think that, and I'm trying to be as charitable as I can for that mentality. Um, I believe that a lot of the flaws that we see now come from flaws that were there 30 plus years ago. Yeah. And it was the um, backwardation of cause and effect between politics and culture. Um, I very much believe um, as a classical liberal, but also as a worldview Christian in a Christian informed view of politics in America. I really do. Uh, I just happen to believe in that in the con in the construct of a, a pluralistic society. And I don't think that's remotely contradictory. And that's really Agreed. what you and I should do our own special podcast on sometime <laughs> is, is um, it, it, you know, because it's it's something that literally has kept me up at night uh, at, at moments over the last year that the Sora Bamaris are, are going to all of a sudden be the ones to lead the debate that needs to happen, the discussion that needs to happen about competing truth claims in a pluralistic society and what the good, bad, and ugly of all that is. I don't believe that that's a light conversation. It's just that the way the whole thing got set up as a war on you and a defense of Trump and all this other silliness, um, and as Jonas pointed out, an attack on the Lockean liberal order, instead of unpacking where, in fact, these things can be compatible and better done under the lordship of Christ, I really believe is, is a tragedy. And I, and I refuse to miss the moment. There will be an opportunity for us to unpack philosophically, theologically, and politically how these things need to be harmonized. But, the, um, but my point is that back with the moral majority, the 70s, 80s, a lot of the people coming out of what Francis Schaeffer's contributions were, which I think were overwhelmingly positive and philosophically cogent, yet they did allow for a lot of people to think politics first, culture second. Yes. And they got it wrong. So then now I can't blame some of the MAGA people for feeling desperate. And, and they feel like we're getting kicked by, uh, you, you say this all the time, right? Both sides think they're losing. Yes. And, 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 and they're completely incapable of seeing it any other way. And one of the strangest things that people miss in the Trump dynamic and the, and the poetry of the moment that he either got accidentally or, or brilliantly was that he was not popular uh, um, because he picked on Obama and Clinton. It was because he picked on Obama, Clinton, and Paul Ryan, and Mitch McConnell, mm -hmm. and George mm -hmm. Bush. There was just this sort of dissatisfaction with evangelical conservatives, and I don't think it was thoughtful necessarily, but I don't mean that insultingly. I really don't. It was instinctive. They just instinctively felt like, we're not getting anywhere, but we've been fighting for politics for 30 years. Yeah. So and and so therefore we need some new guy to come in and kick some ass, so to speak. Yeah. And 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 uh, I I think it was flawed thinking then and flawed thinking now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It is. You know what what was remarkable about it, and I I, I got up um, 
oh gosh, this was uh, about a year ago. I was, you remember when there was these things called speaking engagements, David? Uh, I remember those in the faint recesses of my memory. And I was talking about, you know, the Lord's faithfulness to his people. And I brought up the example of Hezekiah facing, you know, the crisis in the kingdom of Judah under siege. Advisors are saying, you got to go to Egypt. You know, you got to, you got to find the, the, you know, you've got this Assyrian threat. You've got to find the, um, the other regional superpower, Egypt, to support you. Um, and, you know, there's this prophet saying, no, you know, you're the, you're the people of God. God has, God protects his people. So imagine a king, you've got this, you know, like, I don't know if Isaiah was wild-eyed, but imagine a wild-eyed prophet on the one hand saying, you've got to rely on God. There's this besieging army. And then you have like all the rational, reasonable people saying, hey, there's a besieging army. You know what beats an army? Another army. And a king then says, no, I think I'm going with the, the prophet. And what happens? God rescues the kingdom of Judah. And that was taught to me from the cradle. God protects his people. God protects his people. You don't, you know, look not to chariots. Don't go down to Egypt. And, and I remember speaking and I said, but obviously scripture did not anticipate the Hillary Clinton campaign. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it anticipated the Assyrians and a rampaging army. It did not anticipate the Hillary Clinton, the overwhelming mortal threat of Hillary Clinton. And that's where people are is they, and now some of that is transferring over to Joe Biden, even though it's much harder to sort of like catastrophize Joe Biden. <laughs> um, but that's where people are. This real sense they're, they've been all in on politics for a long time. The thought was that politics was going to cure what ails us. It's not curing it. It's not curing it. But the sunk costs of being all in here. And then, and then what do you do? What do you do when somebody rises up who does not personify your values in any way, shape, or form? Um, then what do you do? And we found out. And and one thing, other thing, David, and I'll, I'll then I'll, I'm going to ask you our scenarios. I I didn't appreciate in um, after the election when people are arguing. I'm look, it's lesser of two evils, lesser of two evils, lesser of two evils. How uncomfortable people are living and saying, "I'm with the lesser evil." People don't want to think of themselves like that. They don't want to say, hey, I'm team lesser evil. They want to say about themselves, especially Christian, no, I'm team good. I'm team good. And that created an unbelievable tension between the way in which the Christian evangelical movement wants to see itself and be perceived with the consistent actions of the president. So there's a couple of ways you respond to that. One is you say, I'm team good and I'm going to condemn what's wrong here in the president's actions, or you redefine good. And all of a sudden the tweets become good because look, they're who you're directed at. You know, see who they're directed at. And we're not the ones tweeting, but hey, if King Cyrus wants to tweet, King Cyrus can tweet. And I think what, what is so shocking to a lot of people who are not as deeply invested in this, you know, political cri moment of, pol of perceived political crisis is, wait a minute, are you redefining what's good? in a leader right before our eyes? And the answer for a lot of these guys is yes, yes, they are. Well, I agree completely that that is what has happened. And I've tried 
over the years to really figure out why. And, and I am a big advocate over the years that at some level, a uh, presidential vote is a lesser two evils based on the fact that uh, Jesus has never ran for president in America. <laughs> True. Uh, and, and so I did not consider Mitt Romney a perfect candidate, and, and I did not consider George W. Bush a perfect president, and I defended voting for both of them on the basis of who they were voting against, uh, their personal character, and net net on the policy front, they were more aligned with what uh, I wanted than the other person. With POTUS, I am um, very sympathetic to your argument that there has to be a minimal character standard, and and so uh, at the end of the day, the um, redefining that you're talking about of what good is was always inevitable. It's somewhat tribalistic. It's somewhat psychological. Um, but it also spoke to the anxiety of the moment. And it's entirely cultural, but the problem is people don't know it is. Right. They believe it's political. They think that BLM is getting away with saying some of the things they're getting because politicians allow it or something. Right. And when it's an, an entirely uh, social, cultural, and even academic undergird. And this is just where... Um, the left has been so incredibly superior to the right tactically for 100 years, back to the moments of um, early progressivism that Jonah writes about in liberal fascism. The academy, um, the, the arts, um, the institutions of finance, by the way, that never get talked about, that I work in day in and day out, mm -hmm. were always going to be more leveraged vehicles for cultural impact. So they basically took over all these institutions. They did it over decades, not one election cycle. They lost a few elections along the way. They won a few elections along the way. But it's utterly insane if they believe they did not prevail up to now in the culture war. And I'm not one, by the way, um, that believes that the culture war was it takes two to fight kind of thing. I think they picked a fight with us. And by us, I mean those who believe in the principles of America's founding. And, and I think that we are on defense in the culture war. I truly believe that. But the Trumpian moment has caused a lot of people that are, are reacting emotionally from the anxiety of what they see happening around them I think that Bannon and his ilk thought it was an economic dissatisfaction, and I'm increasingly um, unconvinced of that. I really yeah. don't think I really don't think it had as much to do with blue collar economic fortunes. Clearly, on the margin, that had something to do with it: Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania. But across the country, that MAGA moment that you're talking about, especially within the church, I think a lot of it is just this general angst that we're losing. And I think that what we can do it, after November is have a reset moment that's going to have to be led by leaders on a local level. And a lot will be pastors, a lot won't be, but it needs to be a kind of retraining as to how we're going to evolve out of this crisis of responsibility, if I can tout my own book, that brought us to this place. Yeah. Because the left got it right over the last hundred years, and we are not going to fix it um, in the next four years or eight years. And that's not just a Trumpian comment. It's any presidential candidate. Uh, what plagues us is not political. Therefore, what solves it will not be political. You know, one, one quick 
one quick comment on that. I think that, again, when a lot of people who really sort of revere the president's combativeness and the way he fights, the way he strikes back, don't really realize how much he's, he's not, he's not owning anybody, you know, like this phrase, own the libs, or, um, you'll see these YouTubes like so-and-so destroys so-and-so nobody's being owned. Nobody's being destroyed. Uh, what's happening is that's an odd thing, isn't it? I, I, I haven't been able to figure it out. It was actually our mutual friend, Kevin Williamson, who first pointed that out to me, something he wrote the, um, Kim Jong-un didn't seem to get owned and Vladimir Putin didn't seem to get owned. Now, I agree that the enemy of enemy is your friend mantra would lead you to like Trump when it comes to CNN and MSNBC. He certainly likes fighting with them and CNN and MSNBC aren't nice to me. So therefore, maybe I like that. But I don't really see him necessarily owning them either. One of the biggest um, misunderstandings seems to be when, like I want someone to fight because they're tired of those people being dishonest and being unfair and being immoral, um, uh, being agendized, you know, all of those things I love them to fight back on, but them hurting his feelings or talking about crowd sizes or saying he's not as rich as everyone says he is. That's the stuff that animates him. And it yeah. doesn't animate me one bit. I just don't care. Yeah, exactly. And the, you know, and the, the idea that by him acting, the way that he acts, that he defeats anyone. In fact, he's, he is defeating himself. He's in many ways owning himself. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, conversation about nothing matters. Nothing Trump does matters. No, it matters because even in a time of pre-coronavirus peace and prosperity, pretty high degree of prosperity, he was bumping along at 43%. Why? He wasn't owning anybody. He was owning himself with these tantrums. Um, okay, I, I really want. Can I just to say this. one thing real quick, David? Sure. As you move, as you bring it to this conclusion, conclusion point, the biggest mistake anyone has made in the Trumpian moment has not been "quote unquote" never Trumpers. I consider myself more of a, um, a Trump, you know, uh, a skeptic. The it's not even been the MAGA people. The biggest disappointment uh, should be with the left for not doing all they had to do to get whatever they wanted out of that guy, which was just be nice to him. Oh, yeah. Flattering. All Pelosi and Schumer had to do in November of 2016 is call him and say, this is an incredible victory, one of the most amazing political moments in history, <laughs> and I swear they would have gotten anything they wanted. And, and they would have had a lot of, uh, not only would they have gotten what they wanted, but they would have had a lot of uh, con- quote-unquote conservative evangelicals celebrating the whole way. Probably you're right. Yeah. Let's take a moment and thank our sponsors. Let's start with ExpressVPN. Uh, I know there are times when some of you want to search for something and you don't want your internet history spread all over the web. Uh, and I know what most of you are thinking when you do that is, why don't you just go incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why you should never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. 
ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV, so there's no excuse for you to not use it. Protect your online activity today with a VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit Jonah's exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash remnant, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash remnant, expressvpn.com slash remnant to learn more. Okay, so let's map out three scenarios. What happens to political Christianity if Trump wins? I'm not allowed to say he, that he's not going to. Uh, <laughs> You're no, not I, actually, I wouldn't say that anyways, because I don't know if you are with me on this. Um, I'm much more convinced now than I was in 16 that he's not going to win. And I was so wrong then that I have the humility to say no one should listen to me. I predicted he was going <laughs> to lose and he didn't. So my predictions now mean nothing. That's fine. I, I got to own that. But yeah, I think that political Christianity, more than likely, if Trump wins, it will embolden some of the dynamics that you're talking about um, that are unhealthy. It doesn't have to be that way, though. Um, It is entirely possible Trump could win and there could be some really productive and constructive corrections. But but I don't think that's what would happen. I think it would be seen as a total vindication of the Falwell Jr., Jeff, uh, you know, Pastor Jeffries out of First Baptist Dallas style of, and, you know, and what Franklin Graham has become in his political witness, just a real vindication of sort of this, um, and, and it, not just a sort of a political, a set of political tactics, but a culture. I, I don't know if you've seen this, but this, there's this, you know, or if this is something that just has jumped out to me, but there's almost a culture of, conservative evangelicalism now that is sort of like, not only am I a Christian, but I'm a man and I am tough and I am not afraid. And any sort of outward exhibition of vulnerability, any sort of outward exhibition of, you know, thinking hard about or considering arguments from the other side is seen as creeping evidence of like cultural Marxism or, you know, uh, are you letting intersectionality peek out under the tent? And there's this there, there's this constant sort of, not only should we be faithful um, to scripture, but we should be faithful to scripture at the gun range. And there's this performative masculinity aspect of a lot of what I'm seeing out of in, in parts of particularly Southern evangelicalism that's a little weird, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, and, and so I hope you don't feel like I'm pushing back because I agree 100%. I'm just simply pointing out the other side of the coin. There's some incredible performative social justice nonsense that uh, evangelical leftists do as well. Oh, sure, sure. Oh, of course. And, and, of and course. that's where this remnant comes from in this dynamic of sort of sometimes political, sometimes ecclesiastical homelessness comes from, hence the term remnant. Is I just have no interest in those performative things on either side. Yeah. All right. So narrow Trump loss. What what happens? A narrow Trump loss is probably the worst thing that could happen. I agree with you. (laughs) And the reason why is a big Trump loss, uh, excuse me, a big Trump win or even any Trump win. um, I would on the margin guess that we would get. Um, some better economic policy than we'd get from Biden, and we would get 
uh, better uh, court appointments than we get from Biden, even though we're going to have the downside of other dynamics that you've that, you know, there's no scenario without trade-offs. Right. Uh, but a, a narrow and then and then a huge Trump loss would which is where you're headed. That forces um, a lot of these conversations and recalibrations and and re-strategies. And and he, and by the way, a lot of people, not all, but with a big Trump loss, you're going to see uh, as Peter was with Jesus. A lot of people denying that they were ever. Yes. What they were. So when but I say. I I was just going to say a narrow Trump loss is the scenario where I'm not doing this conspiracy thing. I think it was actually a very irresponsible question. Uh, who was it? Was it um, Wolf Blitzer who asked Biden, like, would the would would you have to have tanks come remove them or something? <laughs> I don't think that you get that kind of moment, but obviously you're going to get the voter fraud and the the conspiracy stuff, and it, and it won't go away lightly. Um, and so if, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do, but if, uh, Trump's going to lose, I think it would be better if it'd be a bigger loss than a small loss. Yeah. I, when I said, I agree with you, what I was specifically thinking of was what, what happens within the world of evangelical Christianity, if there is a narrow loss. And I, and I think that one is an immense amount of, you would see an immense amount of conspiracy thinking. You would see an immense amount of paranoia that something was stolen, and you would see an enormous amount of what I guess the best word to describe it would be fratricide within the church, a sense that this wouldn't have happened if you if we were united. This wouldn't this this awful moment, this contentious moment, this terrible moment would not have happened if we weren't united. And you would see the counter would be, no, this this terrible moment which as you said, would be full of a lot of, of division and uh, a and huge amount of anger uh, that, it, that it wouldn't have happened had you, tied your, had you not tied yourself to this man. You would have an enormous amount of division. But I, I agree, if there's a large Trump loss, um, people have asked me, oh, do you think if there's a big Trump loss that people would say, oh, I'm sorry for ever supporting him? I said, no. <laughs> you, do you? You don't know people very well. It would be, oh, you know, he was always my worst. You know, he was always my last choice. Like, or, yeah, you, yeah, uh, you know, I, what I'm glad I, he's what gone. What I kind of hope would happen is this. Um, I, I would like, my belief has always been when someone says, how can you get mad at Trump for tweeting about um, Mika's facelift and, and insulting the families and uh, all these kind of that punching down stuff he does. Um, people have always said, don't you realize how bad Hillary would have been and so forth. And I've always said, here's the thing. I want to grant you all your arguments, but I want you to grant me that when he does it, it's hurting him. Yeah. You're the, you're, he lost the midterms for so many solidly Republican seats from his behavior and that that has hurt the agenda that you're saying is why we want him, right? We're not getting tax cuts in the second half of Trump's term since we lost Congress. Now are we? We're not getting these other different different yeah. pieces of his agenda. And what one of the things I believe I have a lot of very good friends that are in the administration, and and I'm not uh, a particularly um, big fan, uh, as I know you're not, of Ann Coulter. But one thing that has really fascinated me that no one has talked about is Ann Coulter sitting down with Trump 
after he got elected, pulling him aside and saying, I don't know why none of your real friends will tell you this, so I'll tell you. You cannot go put every one of your family members in a position like this. You, it, you're, you're an idiot. You can't do it. Yeah. And all of a sudden he took back what he was going to do with Eric and Donald Jr. And, and he kind of put a more symbolic thing with Ivanka. And the people I know uh, in the administration tell me that, that there's only one thing you can do bad with Trump, and that is go along with no pushback or say um, that you're against it, but don't be emphatic. If you're mm-hmm. going to oppose him, you got to be emphatic because then he'll actually listen to you and respect it a little bit. And maybe it won't last forever, but at right. least in the moment, you can win some arguments that way. I think that the enablers will learn if he loses big that it, constantly defending the indefensible of that poor behavior, it, it didn't um, ju- just hurt their cause of Trump and MAGA, it hurt the overall movement that they said was their agenda to begin with. I had a uh, conversation. I remember I was speaking at a, a Christian conference. This was shortly after Trump was elected. And and uh, I, you know, said my piece about Trump and why I was, I, I opposed both him and Hillary in the presidential election. And one of the funders of the event came up to me afterwards and was very angry. And he said, I can't believe they let you speak. Um, which I was actually invited because of my perspective. And, yeah. and I said, and he said, well, you must have wanted Hillary to win. And I said, okay, well, number one, it's really too soon to tell what the impact of a Trump presidency will be. But let me, let me ask you this. Um, what, I said, what's your main concern? He said, judges, which is what you're going to hear from a lot of politically involved Christians, judges. I said, okay. Um, after Jimmy Carter uh, was a disastrous president and the American people did not give the White House back to the Democrats until after the Cold War ended, so that's 12 years, how many judges do you think that Reagan and Bush selected for the bench? He says, I don't know. I said, 570. How many members of the Supreme Court? He said, I don't know. I said, a majority. I said, so... Look, this myopic focus on each individual election as the be-all, end-all forgets that a terrible mistake can have a decade or more of consequences. And I think that, you know, that's one thing that it it might entirely be the case that that kind of dynamic is unfolding right now. It may be. I don't know. Trump could win. I don't know, but if you made me bet, if you had to, if you made me bet, where are you going to put all of whatever money that you have post pandemic? I would say the the smart money says that Biden wins a pretty sweeping victory, um, and and the smart money says that there's a probably a pretty strong recovery post vaccine, um, and the smart money says that that puts Biden in a pretty good position to sort of say, hey the adults are back in charge and puts the GOP in an, in an extraordinary disadvantage going forward. That's, if you had to put a, if you made me bet, if you made me bet, I would say of the branching tree of possibilities, that's one that's looming out there. Yeah, I think that the economic side that you've invited in is, um, uh, is, is complicated because 
I do believe that one way or the other, you're going to have a post-vaccine world. I think an awful lot of those things will begin to be priced in and reflected. And I don't just mean the stock market, but I even mean an economic behavior mm -hmm. um, even before the November election. But the other side to that is, let's say Biden wins and he inherits the possibility of recovery out of a post-COVID world. He also inherits what will end up being, I guess, about $5 trillion of additional Oof. national debt. He also Stunning. inherits um, a monetary regime that can't go any lower, right? They have, mm -hmm. They're monetizing federal debt to the tune of trillions and um, are sitting at a 0% interest rate. And, and so I think that you have uh, challenges for whoever is going to be president in 2021 economically, all of which are, can be solved to one degree or the other, but we brought up that word luck earlier in the conversation with COVID, the next president, whoever it may be, is going to need some luck. But would I predict that Biden is going to win and have a rosy first term economically? I'm not there yet. Mm, yeah. Well, like I said, I, I don't want to veer too far from my lane. Yeah. <laughs> so I definitely appreciate uh, appreciate your your perspective on that. So we've got but you and I both predicting that Biden's going to win should cause everyone to go out and and bet on Trump winning yeah. uh, based on 2016, right? Well, I'm but I'm I, every time I say it, I say if 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 if. I mean, I you know I am like you. Look, um, we we saw what happened in 2016. I think one of the interesting things though is I think one one thing that is different is that the polling lead for Biden is persistently larger, persistently. And there is also, it seems to be a much more intentional effort to really do rigorous polling of these swing states. Um, it was interesting to me in the, in the right after 2016, going back and looking, you know, Michigan wasn't polled all that much. You know, the polls, the polls were or wrong. Wisconsin wasn't polled at all. Yeah, amazing. I mean, that's that's always been the thing is that the the polls weren't nearly as wrong as people said. Uh, they were within margin. Uh, Florida, Pennsylvania, and then um, Michigan was wrong, mm -hmm. but lightly polled, and Wisconsin wasn't polled. Yeah, amazing. That, that's the story there. Let's take another break to thank Gabby Insurance. We're all looking for ways to save money, especially now. When's the last time you looked at how much you're spending? every month on car insurance, on homeowner's insurance. Now's the time to check out Gabby and see about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. Just link your current insurance account and in about two minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. If they can't find you savings like they have done for so many others, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing you have the best rate out there. They will never sell your info, so no annoying spam or robocalls. It's totally free to check your rate and there's no obligation. Take two minutes right now to see how much you can save on your car and homeowner's insurance. Go to gabby.com slash remnant. That's gabby.com slash remnant. Gabby.com slash remnant. All right, so let's wind up with a, a little bit of a word on this. You know, the most irrelevant yet most talked about movement in the history of the United States, the allegedly most irrelevant while being most talked about, never Trump. Yeah. 
Um, if you are if you are looking at never Trump, and you you're talking to David, you're you're you don't you don't classify yourself that you're a Trump skeptic. Um, what do you see? Yeah, I I think that it is um, just this group of non monolithic people that um, take on various shapes and sizes and that has been lumped in as one monolithic movement for out of laziness and <laughs> and oftentimes including in the case of a new book um, for the purpose of bearing false witness um, I am probably more down on Jen Rubin and Max Boot than I am any pro-MAGA person in the country. Now, I don't hmm. have to pick between the two. They both disgust me. But I believe in the um, emotions and in the actions of opposing Trump, the, the necessity some felt, just as you and I are critical of people all of a sudden defending paying off porn stars because they wanted better Supreme Court justices, I'm equally... Um, mystified by people who felt the need to all of a sudden um, say I, it's all because of my white privilege and conservatisms, conservatives have been racist for 50 years and I'm no longer for the embassy moving in Israel and uh, changing all their views on everything. Um, it, Bill Crystal's harder for me because I really um, have adored so much of his work forever and I confess to have been really, really influenced by some of the work of his father. Um, and I and I like him as an articulate, you know, 1990s defender of conservatism, but I don't agree with Bill on on uh, now uh, is we're all Democrats now and so forth. I have no intention of defending Joe Biden over the next four months. Right. I just simply don't feel the need to pretend something about Trump that isn't true either. And so the Never Trump movement to me. I know you, and I know Jonah, and we don't all agree on everything. There's a sort of sliding scale of things. And I just believe it's dishonest and lazy for people to use Never Trump as a label against Max Boot and Rich Lowry in the same sentence, because it isn't true. <laughs> They've made very different choices. So let me let me push back a little bit about Max and Jen. And full disclosure, I know them both. I like them both. I think, and I think they're people of integrity. Um, I, I think that what has happened for a lot of people in 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 the sort of the never Trump world is that they have looked at the fact they have looked at the rise of Trump. They have looked at. The, not just the behavior of Trump and the character of Trump, but also of the movement that surrounds him and supports him. And they've said, I don't think I, this conservative movement was what I thought it was. And it has caused them to reappraise and to rethink a lot of things. That this wasn't what I thought it was. The people who, the movement that I thought I was joining that was motivated by a particular set of values and a particular set of policy positions those values proved to be malleable and the policies proved to be malleable. All of a sudden it's nationalist conservative. What? And I think that there is room for people of goodwill and good faith to say, this is not what I signed up for. And I don't think it was as genuine as I thought it was. 
And if you are saying, I don't think it's as genuine as I thought it was, and this is not what I signed up for, it opens up your mind to rethink a lot of things. Um, and, and so I don't, I don't agree. I don't agree with, with, in the context of integrity and, and intellectual sincerity, but also just seriousness of person, the, um, bad, uh, advocates, it has never occurred to me that, um, Buckley and Kirk were wrong about movement conservatism when someone who I know not to be a conservative all of a sudden gets, uh, you know, elected in the, in the party. In other words, rhinoism didn't invalidate uh, movement conservatism any more than MAGAism. It's an ad hominem that, that is um, unfair when people do it to us. And, and I think that what, what in Jen and Max's case, they're at a different level than than what you're describing of just sort of rethinking who the people were it's a categorical repudiation of things that have nothing to do with trump of of one's view of tax cuts mm-hmm. of one's view of supply side economics of one's view of foreign policy that's that though you know and that by the way it's happened on the other side too there's people that were total defenders of the iraq war that are now in the MAGA camp that go on and on about, oh, all you endless war people and so forth. Yeah. And you know who some of who I'm talking about are. Um, so some of them may be of goodwill. I don't happen to think all of them are. And, and again, you, if you know Jen personally, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, it's very hard for, publicly for what I see to see goodwill and intellectual seriousness in it. But either way, all I know is for me, I really believe it's important because I have far more friends that are Trump voters than not. Mm-hmm. And I'm uncompromising in my principles around Trump that I have to stick to the things I believe. And I see a lot in that kind of extreme never Trump movement that have not. And I think they're, I think that they're angry. I think they're disappointed. I get all of that. I'm angry and disappointed too, but I just, do not believe that when you mix up the whole pot that you, Jonah, Jen, Max, Rick Wilson, um, <laughs> all the way to people that are more like some of your old colleagues at National Review, you, I don't think it's all the same thing. I think there's different nuances and different distinctions oh, and complete. different pros and cons that that deserve to be highlighted. Well, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, we're talking about people with different ideologies, uh, different tactical approaches, different the one thing that I object to is the, I, I don't like ascribing bad faith um, unless I have overwhelming evidence of bad faith. And because I think it's a very difficult time and people are making very difficult choices in a very difficult time. Um, you know, like my assessment of the evangelical, I was a lawyer for the evangelical conservative movement for years. I've been in all of the meetings <laughs> You know, I've heard the expression of the heartfelt heartfelt values and then to see a lot of them just go out the window is a tough experience for a person. It's a tough experience. And so it does say, okay, wait a minute. What is this movement? What is this movement? What is it? What was it about? Really? What is it about? And, and so I think that that leads to a variety of different conclusions. And, and I will say this, I think there is a interesting difference, David between those people who, 
are quote unquote never Trump who are social conservative and those people who are never Trump who are not. So I think there is an interesting uh, an easier path to join Democrats if you're a social, if you're a uh, never Trump and you're not socially conservative. Why? Because negative polarization starts to mean that a lot of the things that you don't like about Trump become a, their converse becomes adapted by the Democrats. So if Trump is, is uh, down on NATO and all of it, and you're pro NATO and all of a sudden the Democrats are pro NATO much more than they have been, well, that's kind of compelling. If Democrats used to be more anti-free trade and all of a sudden Trump is anti-free trade and some Democrats now are warming up to free trade, you begin to see how this works. But I'll tell you one area where that's not happening at all is social conservatism. Negative, you know, the, the, the opposition to social conservatism in the Democratic Party is only increasing as near as I can tell. Although, you yeah. know, it'd be much more so if, say, you know, a, a Bernie Sanders had won the primary than a Joe Biden. But it's only increasing. And so if you're a social conservative and you're deeply alarmed by what's happening for Trump, then you're really talking remnant territory yeah. because you just don't have a plausible home in the Democratic Party at all. Not at all. Whereas but see, I don't, not, I don't think that I think that of the three legged stool of Reagan, the only one where you maybe would is potentially in foreign policy, because I mm -hmm. don't think that um, never Trumpers who are true economic conservatives have a home there either. I really no, don't. I, no, I, I, I agree with that, but I don't think they have a home necessarily in Trumpism either. I mean, no, that's right. But see, here's, here's where I want to apply the principle that you and I have applied pretty faithfully and sometimes relentlessly to Republicans. I want to apply it to, to the never Trump folks. I have been very disappointed, David, as a lifetime free trader, um, at those who did not just say, hey, Trump's better than Hillary, but then all of a sudden, a week later, a month later, no, about eight months later, this fair trade and we're, uh, we're tired mm -hmm. of losing and trade deals. There was a real, that's probably the best issue when you're not talking about porn stars and some of that other kind of salacious <laughs> stuff. Uh -huh. Ideologically, free trade was the issue where Republicans proved to be the cheapest date. Okay, they haven't gone back on abortion. They haven't gone back on a lot of the other issues. But on when you're talking about policy, yeah, when you're talking about policy, free trade was the one they gave in on the most. But yeah. I've been critical of those who felt the need to change their position on free trade because of their support of President Trump. I find it mandatory that I therefore be consistent in reverse that in one's opposition to Trump, for them to then reverse their views on a plethora of issues. Um, I think that that's equally distasteful. And I don't disagree with you that there's a lot of um, complexity and emotion and, and difficulty in the moment. But unfortunately, that difficulty is true of MAGA folks too. Mm -hmm. the, what we have to do as principled ideologues and movement warriors who value the country, value faith, is just find a way, as the remnant principles dictate, to not worry about the popularity of it. Yeah. I supported Kavanaugh not because Trump appointed him. I supported Kavanaugh because I knew him to be a justice worthy of being on the court. And I knew the attack that was being promulgated upon him was completely reprehensible. But I think that some had to reverse their position on Kavanaugh once it got dicey because it came from, from Trump. 
And and I and I, um, I that to me is something that is disappointing in the same way the the folks that I and by the way it's still going on now you hear some of the leaders that will be leaders by the way in a post Trump Republican Party too they've kind of repackaged their views on trade I get repackaging you mm-hmm. know I think the context of the moment politically um, probably requires some of that but I'm saying a full blown reframing. Um, we can't have that. We, we, our movement deserves better. Um, and so that's my view on this whole never Trump discussion. So since I'm, uh, since I'm the, the guest host, I'll, I'll reserve the last word for myself. I think here's an interesting test about if you went back to your 2015 self and described your 2020 self to your 2015 self, if your 2015 self would be offended at the description of your 2020 self, like how dare you think I be that I could become that person <laughs> and hold those views, then maybe there's a, a, a there should be a, a pause. Yeah. There, there should be a pause. And, and I can think of an awful lot of people on both sides of the aisle that if I describe their 2020 self to their 2015 self, they would be in their 2015 self would be insulted hmm. that they would either defend what they've defended or attacked who they've attacked. And I, I kind of have used that as a, a thought experiment in my mind and also as kind of a check on myself. You know, I thought, you know, here are the values that I had before we were placed, they were placed under this incredible stress. Do I still hold to them? And if I don't still hold to them, is there a really, really, really darn good reason? What about holding to them with the same conviction and the yeah. same presentation? Mm-hmm. See, I think a lot of people would say, yes, I'm still this, but... You know what I mean? The the yes. qualifiers are a little different now. Well, as as uh, I forget who said this, uh, Sarah has repeated it on our podcast, Advisory Opinions. Um, if you hear the word but, the only thing that matters is what comes after the but. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, David. This has been a wide-ranging, fun uh, discussion. Thanks, listeners, for hanging in with us. Jonah will be back after and with tales of wrestling grizzly bears and interviewing. Is it big feet, big foot, big feet? I don't know. (laughs) Um, And so Jonah will be back and uh, you can hear me on the dispatch podcast or on advisory opinions. And I know uh, you'll be hearing David on the remnant again sometime, I'm sure. And David, tell folks how to follow you. Well, right now, covidandmarkets.com is where I'm daily writing updated economic and uh, health commentary on everything affecting our American economy around the COVID pandemic. So we'll keep it simple with covidandmarkets.com. But uh, don't worry, we will get a chance, David, to talk post-millennialism on a future podcast. <laughs> That's Maybe you need to come on advisory opinions and do that because I'm not sure that the remnant listeners want an hour on post-millennialism. No, Joan and I have done it and people love it. I'm telling Uh, you. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, thank you, David. And thank you all for listening. 